Chapter 32, Part 2 of Principles of Geology. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sycamore Rockwell. Principles of Geology by Charles Lyell. Geysers of Iceland. As aqueous vapor constitutes the most abundant of the aeriform products of volcanoes in eruption, it may be well to consider attentively a case in which steam is exclusively the moving power, that of the geysers of Iceland. These intermittent hot springs occur in a district situated in the southwestern division of Iceland, where nearly 100 of them are said to break out within a circle of two miles. That the water is of atmospheric origin, derived from rain and melted snow, is proved, says Professor Bunsen, by the nitrogen which rises from them either pure or mixed with other gases. The springs rise through a thick current of lava, which may perhaps have flowed from Mount Hecla, the summit of that volcano being seen from the spot at the distance of more than 30 miles. In this district, the rushing of water is sometimes heard in chasms beneath the surface, for here, as on Etna, rivers flow in subterranean channels through the porous and cavernous lavas it has more than once happened after earthquakes that some of the boiling fountains have increased or diminished in violence and volume or entirely ceased or that new ones have made their appearance changes which may be explained by the opening of new rents and the closing of pre-existing fissures few of the geysers play longer than five or six minutes at a time although sometimes half an hour the intervals between their eruptions are for the most part very irregular the great geyser rises out of a spacious basin at the summit of a circular mound composed of siliceous incrustations deposited from the spray of its waters the diameter of this basin in one direction is fifty-six feet and forty-six in another in the centre is a pipe seventy-eight feet in perpendicular depth and from eight to ten feet in diameter but gradually widening as it rises into the basin the inside of the basin is whitish, consisting of a siliceous crust and perfectly smooth, as are likewise two small channels on the sides of the mound, down which the water escapes when the bowel is filled to the margin. The circular basin is sometimes empty, as represented in the following sketch, but is usually filled with beautifully transparent water in the state of ebullition. During the rise of the boiling water in the pipe, especially when the ebullition is most violent and when the water is thrown up in jets subterranean noises are heard like the distant firing of a cannon and the earth is slightly shaken the sound then increases and the motion becomes more violent till at length a column of water is thrown up with loud explosions to the height of one or two hundred feet after playing for a time like an artificial fountain and giving off great clouds of vapor the pipe or tube is emptied and a column of steam rushing up with amazing force and a thundering noise terminates the eruption if stones are thrown into the crater they are instantly ejected and such is the explosive force that very hard rocks are sometimes shivered into small pieces henderson found that by throwing a great quantity of large stones into the pipe of stoker one of the geysers he could bring on an eruption in a few minutes. The fragments of stone, as well as the boiling water, were thrown in that case to a much greater height than usual. After the water had been ejected, a column of steam continued to rush up with a deafening roar for nearly an hour, but the geyser, as if exhausted by this effort, did not send out a fresh eruption when its usual interval of rest had elapsed. 
The account given by Sir George Mackenzie of a geyser which he saw in eruption in 1810 agrees perfectly with the above description by Henderson. The steam and water rose for half an hour to the height of 70 feet, and the white column remained perpendicular, notwithstanding a brisk gale of wind which was blowing against it. Stones thrown into the pipe were projected to a greater height than the water. To leeward of the vapour, a heavy shower of rain was seen to fall. Among the different theories proposed to account for these phenomena, I shall first mention one suggested by Sir J. Herschel. An imitation of these jets, he says, may be produced on a small scale by heating red-hot the stem of a tobacco pipe, filling the bowl with water and so inclining the pipe as to let the water run through the stem. Its escape, instead of taking place in a continued stream, is then performed by a succession of violent explosions, at first of steam alone, then of water mixed with steam, and, as the pipe cools, almost wholly of water. At every such proxismal escape of the water, a portion is driven back, accompanied with steam, into the bowl. The intervals between the explosions depend on the heat, length, and inclination of the pipe, their continuance on its thickness and conducting power. The application of this experiment to the geysers merely requires that a subterranean stream flowing through the pores and crevices of lava should suddenly reach a fissure in which the rock is red-hot or nearly so. Steam would immediately be formed, which, rushing up the fissure, might force up water along with it to the surface, while at the same time, part of the steam might drive back the water of the supply for a certain distance towards its source. And when, after the space of some minutes, the steam was all condensed, the water would return and a repetition of the phenomena take place. There is, however, another mode of explaining the action of the geyser, perhaps more probable than the above described. Suppose water percolating from the surface of the earth to penetrate into the subterranean cavity AD by the fissures FF, while at the same time steam at an extremely high temperature, such as is commonly given out from the rents of lava currents during congelation, emanates from fissures C. A portion of the steam is at first condensed into water, while the temperature of the water is raised by the latent heat thus evolved till, at last, the lower part of the cavity is filled with boiling water and the upper with steam under high pressure. The expansive force of the steam becomes, at length, so great that the water is forced up the fissure or pipe EB and runs over the rim of the basin. When the pressure is thus diminished, the steam in the upper part of the cavity A expands until the water D is driven into the pipe. And when this happens, the steam, being the lighter of the two fluids, rushes up through the water with great velocity. If the pipe be choked up artificially, even for a few minutes, a great increase of heat must take place, for it is prevented from escaping in a latent form in steam, so that the water is made to boil more violently, and this brings on an eruption. Professor Bunsen, before cited, adopts this theory to account for the play of the little geyser but says it will not explain the phenomena of the Great One. He considers this, like the others, to be a thermospring, having a narrow funnel-shaped tube in the upper part of its course, where the walls of the channel have become coated with siliceous incrustations. At the mouth of this tube, the water has a temperature corresponding to the pressure of the atmosphere of about 212 degrees Fahrenheit, but at a certain depth below, it is much hotter. This the professor succeeded in proving by experiment. A thermometer suspended by a string in the pipe 
rising to 266 degrees Fahrenheit, or no less than 48 degrees above the boiling point. After the column of water has been expelled, what remains in the basin and pipe is found to be much cooled. Previously to these experiments of Bunsen and Descloisacs, made in Iceland in 1846, it would scarcely have been supposed possible that the lower part of a free and open column of water could be raised so much in temperature without causing a circulation of ascending and descending currents, followed by an almost immediate equalization of heat. Such circulation is no doubt impeded greatly by the sides of the wall not being vertical and by numerous contractions of its diameter, but the phenomenon may be chiefly due to another cause. According to recent experiments on the cohesion of liquids by Mr. Donny of Ghent, it appears that when water is freed from all admixture of air, its temperature can be raised even under ordinary atmospheric pressure to 275 degrees Fahrenheit. So much does the cohesion of its molecules increase when they are not separated by particles of air. As water long boiled becomes more and more deprived of air, it is probably very free from such intermixture at the bottom of the geysers. Among other results of the experiments of Bunsen and his companion, they convince themselves that the column of fluid filling the tube is constantly receiving accessions of hot water from below, while it becomes cooler above by evaporation on the broad surface of the basin. They also came to a conclusion of no small interest, as bearing on the probable mechanism of ordinary volcanic eruptions, namely that the tube itself is the main seat of focus of mechanical force. This was proved by letting down stones suspended by strings to various depths. Those which were sunk to considerable distances from the surface were not cast up again, whereas those nearer to the mouth of the tube were ejected to great heights. Other experiments also were made tending to demonstrate the singular fact that there is often scarce any motion below when a violent rush of steam and water is taking place above. It seems that when a lofty column of water possesses a temperature increasing with depth, any slight ebullition or disturbance of equilibrium in the upper portion may first force up water into the basin and then cause it to flow over the edge. A lower portion, thus suddenly relieved of part of its pressure, expands and is converted into vapour more rapidly than the first, owing to its greater heat. This allows the next subjacent stratum, which is much hotter, to rise and flash into a gaseous form, and this process goes on till the ebullition has descended from the middle to near the bottom of the funnel. In speculating, therefore, on the mechanism of an ordinary volcanic eruption, we may suppose that large subterranean cavities exist at the depth of some miles below the surface of the earth, in which melted lava accumulates. And when water containing the usual mixture of air penetrates into these, the steam thus generated may press upon the lava and force it up the duct of a volcano, in the same manner as a column of water is driven up the pipe of a geyser. In other cases, we may suppose a continuous column of liquid lava mixed with red-hot water, for water may exist in that state, as Professor Bunsen reminds us, under pressure, and this column may have a temperature regularly increasing downwards. A disturbance of equilibrium may first bring on an eruption near the surface by the expansion and conversion into gas of entangled water and other constituents of what we call lava, so as to occasion a diminution of pressure. More steam would then be liberated, carrying up with it jets of melted rock, which being hurled up into the air may fall in showers of ashes on the surrounding country. 
and at length, by the arrival of lava and water more and more heated at the orifice of the duct or the crater of the volcano, expansive power may be acquired sufficient to expel a massive current of lava. After the eruption has ceased, a period of tranquility succeeds, during which fresh accessions of heat are communicated from below, and additional masses of rocks fused by degrees, while at the same time, atmospheric or seawater is descending from the surface. At length, the conditions required for a new outburst are obtained, and another cycle of similar changes is renewed. End of chapter 32, part 2. Recording by Sycamore Rockwell.